Good morning. morning. Thought you might find that interesting. I uh, I always find it interesting when archaeologists go back and they check on stuff. And uh, the most interesting part about that little video was the fact that the only place in the world where that sulfur is found or brimstone is found with 90% purity is there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you were also, it's all fascinating to me, if you go to that place today, Sodom and Gomorrah, it is as desolate as any place you have ever seen. I mean, you don't even see a scrub plant. I mean, it's just, it's just desolate. It's just, just sand and dirt and rocks, and, and, that, and that's all that's there. And so this morning, we're going to kind of go back and pick up Abraham's story in the setting of Sodom and Gomorrah. And really, we're going to be talking about Lot. And we're kind of picking up that series we did last summer when we were talking about Abraham. And we're kind of doing a series within a series. And we're talking specifically over the next four weeks about Abraham's family. And there's some crazy things that happened in his family. And we're going to be looking at one of those today. And before I get to Lot, though, I want to share something with you. I feel like I'm fading out a little bit here. I feel like, or I want to share something with you. It is by a guy by the name of Carl Zimmerman. He has a doctorate and he was the Harvard sociologist. And he examined the rise and fall of civilizations. And specifically his kind of area of expertise was, how was family life linked to national life? What role did the family play when civilizations begin to unravel? And he has a book out, it's called Family and Civilizations, and it concludes that deteriorating civilizations follow a reasonably defined pattern and that dysfunctional families dominate the social landscapes in decaying cultures. And he points out five characteristics that he said are common across civilizations. First one is this. Marriage loses its sacredness. Divorce becomes commonplace and alternative forms of marriage are accepted. Number two, these are his findings. Feminist movements undermine complementary and cooperating roles as women, women lose interest in mothering and pursue personal power. Number three, parenting becomes increasingly difficult. Public disrespect for parents and authority in general is undermined. There's an increase in delinquency. Number four, Adultery is celebrated, not punished. People who break their marriage vows are celebrated. Number five, there is an increased tolerance for incestuous and homosexual sex with an increase in sexual related crimes. Now you hear that and you think to yourself, man, that dude nails it, right? For our culture today. I mean, he absolutely gets it right. Do you know he wrote that in 1947? And 1947, many people would refer to that as like the golden age of the family in America. 
You see, when he wrote that, he wasn't looking at the United States because there wasn't a problem in the United States with the family. He was just doing an academic study about how families, how as the family falls apart, civilization falls apart. And while his description certainly fits the 21st century, I think it's important that we keep in mind that sin has been a part of of everybody's lives since the fall of Adam and Eve. And I mention that so that we keep a perspective this morning on Genesis chapter 19. Because the event that we're going to look at this morning and the events of Genesis chapter 19 are humanity at its absolute worst. So Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that term has just become synonymous with with evil, right? I mean, it's just an iconic word that we use for for evil. Historically, the moniker has become a a name for the worst types of evil. I just want to share a story with you that I read, or uh, a historical story that I read about in Reader's Digest. Just like today, back in the, the 16, 1600s, Jamaica was a gorgeous place. I mean, tropical paradise. And even back then, those that had money would move to Jamaica and build these beautiful mansions, uh, especially in the town of, of Port Royal. But Port Royal wasn't a tourist trap. It was a pirate city. It was hailed as a 17th century Sodom. And those who lived back then said it was the most wicked place, one of the most depraved cities on earth. In fact, the online Encyclopedia Britannica describes it as the wickedest city in the world. It says, if you think of something evil that people would do, they did it at Port Royal. Then in 1692... In the span of 10 minutes, three earthquakes hit Port Royal. And then a tsunami followed that. Geologists who study that kind of thing estimate that the strongest of those earthquakes was a 7.6 on the Richter scale. And they said literally, Port Royal, a good portion of it, fell into the ocean. Here's an eyewitness description of what happened. The earth heaved and swelled like rolling billows, and in many places the earth cracked open, opened and shut with a motion quick and fast. And some of these people were swallowed up, and others they were caught in the middle and pressed to death. The whole was attended with the noise of falling mountains at a distance, while the sky turned dull and reddish like a glowing oven." At that particular time, the city had a population of about 6,500. 2,000 people were killed by the tsunami and the earthquake. And then without shelter and water and a lot of the things that we take for granted today, another 3,000 people died in the aftermath. The people of Jamaica were so upset and so scared that they were convinced that God had destroyed the city because of its wickedness and they outlawed piracy. Even to this day, the people in Port Royal believe that God used those earthquakes to judge their city for its sins. So they still refer to it as a 17th century Sodom. 
And Sodom today is still synonymous with evil and judgment. We use it to refer to places of evil even today. Have you ever been in a city or been in a place and said something like this? Man, I was so glad to get out of there. I felt like I was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ever had that? I mean, you could just sense and feel the evil on you. You know, like Satan was walking next to you and you could just feel it and you would say something like that. Places of ill repute, they like to use the name, name their establishments and kind of flaunt their evilness and their wickedness. But here's the thing. We have to be careful this morning that we don't just view these cities and that term as something kind of mythical. Places that have no relevance or commonality with us today. We should not forget even though a thousand, thousands of years separate us from Abraham and Lot and his peers, that we have that same sinful nature. And if not for the grace of God, there go I. And, and, and God preserves events like what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah for us to learn from. Over in the book of Romans chapter 15, he mentions whatever was written in former days is written for our instruction. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at Lot this morning specifically, the nephew of Abraham. And we're going to pick up his story in Genesis chapter 19, verse 19. And as we pick up the story, God has said that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he hasn't done it yet. And so he sent some angels to warn Lot and to get his family out of there. And so Lot has kind of been pulled from his bed and he's been taken to the edge of the city and he's been instructed to flee up into the hill country, but he doesn't want to go to the hill country because he feels like that'll be uncomfortable and, and that kind of thing. And so he doesn't want to flee to the mountains. So we pick up in verse 19 and this is what he says. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. So this is Lot talking. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I will die. And then he goes on in verse 20, and he says, Look, here is a town near enough to run to. The name of the town is actually Zor. And it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. Sadly, however... Lot's wife never makes it to Zor. You know how sometimes you read those Bible stories and learn those Bible stories when you're a kid and sometimes there's things that you just never forget? To me, Lot's wife is one of those kind of stories. It's like it's etched in my mind forever. I guess because what happened to her is just so different. I mean, something that, that never has ever happened as far as I know again in human history, at least not recorded in scripture. Because she looks back, she's turned into a pillar of salt. Like you never forget that, do you? I mean, it just sticks with you forever. What? She did, they did what to her? God turned her into a pillar of salt. So let's continue reading here. Verse 23. Then the Lord rained down, burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, from the Lord out of the heavens. And then it continues in verse 25. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But wife's lot looked back 
and she became a pillar of salt. So Lot's wife's gone. So consequently, when they go into this new town of Zor, or they go to this town of Zor, there's only three people left that survived Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Lot and his two daughters. And they settle on this city in Zor, which is kind of you know, near the, the, the Dead Sea, the southeastern end of it. And we read this in verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains. Isn't that interesting? Because that's where the angels told him to go to to start with. But they didn't. But eventually, for whatever the reasons, he doesn't like Zor, so he goes into the mountains. For he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. So the angels had originally told him to move the mountains, and he didn't. And I would have just surmising here, they probably also told him, maybe you ought need to go talk to your uncle Abraham rather than living in a cave. I mean, that, doesn't that sound logical? Here's something I want you to, that, that I, find, I find extremely interesting. Something about Sodom and Gomorrah skewed people's minds. It's like they just couldn't think right. Something happened, terrible to the brain. And throughout the narrative about Sodom and Gomorrah, it just seemed like the people lack the ability to reason. Would you just think about this narrative a little bit with me, about what I'm talking about? Just sort of defective reasoning. Lot's wife resisted leaving a city that God basically called a cesspool of evil. She didn't want to leave. Lot made bizarre decisions such as offering his daughters to these men who wanted to get his guest. You remember that part of the story? It was back what we did this summer. What dad gives away their daughters like that to be raped? I mean, what kind of reasoning is that? Obviously, defective reasoning. Thirdly, they, they wanted to stay in a city that God had marked for devastation. Lot bargained with the angels on where he should have, you know, where he was supposed to run to. And he chose to live in a cave with his daughters rather than going and talking to his uncle Abraham and seeking refuge. I mean, it's just nuts. The way living in that place of evil messed up their minds. This altered thinking just, just kind of characterized his daughters as well. And so here's what I want to do this morning. This, this incident that involves Lot and his daughters, I find four characteristics of defective reasoning. And Zimmerman's observations about a, a civilization based on disintegrating families that the civilization falls apart, pay close attention to these defective reasons. Because I think you'll see some of these in our families today too. And if you do, I hope you'll take some actions to move away from them. The first example of defective reasoning that you see in this story is there's a lack of a godly viewpoint. We don't know how long that Lot and his daughters lived in this cave, but it was enough time at least anyway for the daughters to give up hope of ever marrying Remember what we talked about before in ancient times? A woman's worth was her ability to be a mother. 
That, that, if, you, if you couldn't have children, I mean, you just didn't count for anything. I mean, her self-worth was derived in those times from the ability to have children. And so that, they're, they're thinking about that. And so this is what we read as the older sister says to the younger one in verse 31. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children as is the custom all over the earth. Now you have to ask yourself a question. Why would they think that there are no men around? Scripture doesn't tell us why they thought that. But the assumption is this. They thought that Sodom and Gomorrah was a catastrophic event that just didn't happen in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it happened in the entire world. And so basically they think they are the only three survivors on the whole earth. So they don't see any hope of any eligible men that they can marry. But regardless of why they thought that, what you, don't, what you see in the story there was no prayer involved. There was no waiting on God. Even though God had just rescued them from destruction, there's no thought that, that God might have some kind of bigger plan here. They decide to kind of take things in their own hands. Instead of asking God, didn't do that. You think they probably just imagined how their neighbors in Sodom would have solved this problem. Because think about the city that these girls grew up in. The people that they walked beside, the people that they looked like, talked with, they acted like them. And by the time these girls were rescued from this cesspool, their minds had been contaminated. There's a second kind of defective reasoning thing here. A lack of moral discernment. To borrow from an old expression, you can take the girl out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of the girl. Let's look at uh, Lot's oldest daughter's suggestion on her suggestion as to how they solved this problem of being mothers. And here's the thing. Notice how casual. Notice the fact that this just seems reasonable to her, that it just seems natural. Verse 32. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. I mean, isn't it absolutely crazy that she suggests this to her sister like she's suggesting somewhere to go out and eat tonight? I mean, it's just, just no big deal. But again, think about what she was raised in. How many times did he, she hear her friends talk about family members engaging in sexual relations while she was growing up. We don't know, but apparently enough for her to think this is kind of normal. What about the younger daughter? Did she jump up and down and say, no, no, this is not right? No. She just doesn't object either. You see no hesitation from either of these girls. Both of these daughters are very comfortable getting their father drunk and using seduction to get whatever it is they want. And so they formulate and they implement their scheme as casually as you might write out a grocery list. Number three, 
defective reasoning with the lack of parental authority. Does it bother you that, that neither of these girls saw this as a monumental boundary to cross over, to have sex with their father? Hey, we need somebody to impregnate us. Might as well be our dad. Why not, right? Seemed to be their line of reasoning. You know what else this suggests? They didn't see their dad as a guy to be honored and respected. Apparently, he had not been a spiritual leader. Apparently, he had not given them spiritual guidance. He just hadn't done it. The minds of these daughters, nothing distinguished their father from any other man. And from this point on in the narrative, Lot is just this passive guy. He doesn't play an active role. Judging by the way the the daughters move him around and manipulate him, he was nothing more almost than than a piece of furniture. Notice verse 33. That night, they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. Which brings us to the fourth thing. A lack of sensitivity to morality. You know, children who are exposed to immorality over long periods of time begin to lose their sensitivity to moral things. They become emotionally hardened and spiritually detached. And if that exposure takes place early enough in the formation of a child, they never develop a conscience. Let me give you just kind of an extreme example of that. Places in Africa that have those child soldiers, eight, nine, ten years old, and they can kill people with no remorse whatsoever. Absolutely no remorse because their conscience has been seared and it hadn't been, hadn't formulated like a normal child's conscience develops. And even in hardened children, if somehow they, they gain a sense of morality later on in life, it's so easy for them to go back to where they were before. And so what happens with children is they are capable, these, these types of children that we're talking about, like his daughters and these child soldiers, they are capable of doing immoral acts that absolutely shock those of us who have a moral compass. Again, notice in verses 34 and 35 how casually these two daughters carry out their plan. Verse 34, the next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. You know, if you would have asked the people of Sodom about Lot, they would have told you some things about him, just surface things that they knew, that that Lot was wealthy, he owned property, he owned a house, he had stability, he had power. He sat with the influential leaders, the respected leaders of the community. But you know that was all just superficial. There was no, no substance to it. He gambled on moving his family to Sodom. Remember, Abraham went a different way, but Lot 
went to Sodom and he lost everything. You know, I'm sure you've noticed this. We've got all those fires out in California. Uh, Last night, there was somebody on the news that had lost a home in Chattanooga. And oftentimes, you hear people say something like this in those kind of events. They say, you know what? We lost everything, but we still have our family, and we can replace everything else. You hear them say things like that. Lot couldn't say that. He lost everything, and then his family disintegrated too. And it all went quickly. Notice the fallout. A few weeks later, the physical signs are evident. Verse 36 is just so matter of fact, the way it's described, verse 36. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. And then nine months separate verses 36 and 37. And here's what we don't see in scripture during those nine months. There's no confrontation by Lot. There's there's no outrage. And from the daughters, there's no repentance. There's no remorse. There's no confession. There's no acknowledgement of wrong. I mean, it's like there's no shame in this family over this whole situation. And then when you get to verse 37, when the narrative announces the birth, it's just so matter of fact again. And here's something that I, another one of those kind of things I think is really interesting. There's a brazen attitude about the lack of shamefulness, even with the naming of the children. You see, in the, the ancient Near East, when, when you name children, uh, their name had significance. For instance, Abraham and, and uh, Sarah, their child was named Isaac. You know what Isaac means? It means laughs. And so whenever somebody has a name, you know, dinner conversations or whatever, you meet somebody and you might ask them over dinner or whatever, well, what does your name mean? Well, if you're Isaac, he's like, well, my name, my name means laughs because my parents were so old, nobody ever thought they could have children. Ha, 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 kind of idea. So it had significance. So the daughters, here's what they named their children. Moab which means from my mom's father. The youngest daughter named hers Ammi, which means son of my kinsman. So how about that for a dinner conversation? Yeah. Hey, Moab, so what's your name mean? Uh, son of my mom's father. Can you say awkward? Yeah, like really. But again, there's, there doesn't seem to be any shame. And as this story closes, we don't hear anything else about Lot. We don't know how he died. We don't know if he ever saw Abraham again or Abraham just thinks he died in in Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know if he had any kind of relationship with those sons. I mean, Lot just kind of fades into the footnotes of Israel's history. And he would be irrelevant except for one thing. Moab and Ammi became patriarchs of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And those two nations were enemies of Israel all the way through the kingdoms of David and Solomon. I mean, they were just relentless enemies. So what do we learn? What can we as parents Take away from this story, this disintegration of Lot's family. 
What, what can we learn? Here's the first one. Realize that no one else, but no one is immune to the dangers of culture. Lot moved into Sodom knowing what he was moving into. And I don't know if he, he just thought, you know what, I, I, I'm strong enough. My family can overcome this. We'll, we'll be okay. We can hold off against this pressure to conform. And obviously they couldn't. The relentless pressure of being surrounded by that evil and wickedness drug his family down and away from God. Eventually, years of exposure messed up his mind and his kids' minds. You and I, we're not immune either. I mean, we all know what kind of cultures we're living in in our country. We're not immune to it. Doesn't matter you come to church all the time, you who have a strong Christian heritage, you who read your Bibles every day, you who are engaged in ministry, none of us are immune. And your family and your kids are not immune. We need to remember that. I guess the example I could use is just the culture can overwhelm you just like a riptide can overwhelm a strong swimmer. Three more things, just for lessons for us as parents. Second one is this. Stay alert to the subtle hints. Don't ignore hints that something is wrong. It's like when that engine light comes on, and we've kind of talked about this before in your car. You don't like take a black magic marker and color it over so you can't see it anymore. You don't take a piece of black electrical tape. Oh, I'll just cover it up with electrical tape. As long as I don't see it, everything will be okay, right? No, you've got problems. Probably big problems if you do that. Well, when the warning lights go off in our family, we need to be paying attention. We need to be looking for stuff. In your family, there shouldn't be any toleration of profane or vulgar things. You need to keep an eye on what is entertaining your children Get into the habit of asking yourself, is this good for my children? Is this beneficial? Is this wholesome and is it healthy? You should avoid people who make light of sacred things. Don't spend time with people who mock what is righteous and good. Don't hang out. Don't let your kids hang out with those kinds of people. Don't ignore comments and words that you hear your children say. Anybody here ever had a child come home from school or a friend's house or whatever and they say a word and you're just like, what? Anybody, raise your hand. Oh, come on, there's more than three of us in here. All you perfect parents. I think everybody's had that experience. Well, that's a warning light. Now, maybe it was something they heard in school and I know kids have to go to school and you, you have to correct that. But sometimes it comes from other sources that you know, you need to like steer them away from in a big, big way. Those are all warning lights. And there are all kinds of opportunities for our children to hear bad words and bad language and bad expressions, whether it's in the neighborhood or school or TV or the internet or whatever. Stay involved and take the necessary steps, parents. Number three, decide your standard and model it repeatedly. Lot never had a standard. He never established one. Just never did. 
Don't be like that. Declare your standard and live it out consistently. You might even consider writing it down. I know a family that has a list of, of stuff, values, virtues, whatever you want to call it, and that th- they keep posted at their house. I'm sure they talk about it at dinner time and stuff like that because it's important to them. And that, that, that's good stuff. And you might think, well, that just seems a little crazy to me. Compare that to how much time your children spend exposed to immoral influences. Parents, all the research shows that you are still the number one influence in your child's life. You are. You carry immense weight. Discuss your values. Model your values. Encourage your children to do the same. Be proactive. And the fourth is this. Don't just shrug your shoulders. Guard against passivity. In other words, don't just... Oh, you know, I know how it gets. I got five kids. There are days you're just like tired of fighting the battles, right? Am I right? Yeah, you're just tired. You want to, ah, oh, just whatever. That's the way we think sometimes because you just get wore out and kids can wear you out, can't they? Because they're persistent and they'll just keep on. Don't give up. Don't do it. Don't get passive. Don't just shrug your shoulders and think, oh, that's no big deal. I was a kid once too. They'll be okay. Think about the things that our generation faces that we never faced. I mean, it's a a different world. Listen to what your kids bring home from school. Pay attention to the friends they choose. Be clear about establishing standards. Hold on to them. Know what kind of music they're playing playing what kind of video games that they are playing take an interest in the movies that they watch you can't expect the church or the christian school to do the parenting for you i love this quote the church cannot resurrect what the home has put to death that is just loaded with truth You cannot expect the church in one or two hours of ministry to parent your children. Always remember passivity is an enemy. I want you to listen to this quote by Billy Graham. He's talking about how passive our country several years ago. He said, Mr. Average Man is comfortable in his complacency and is unconcerned as a silverfish ensconced in a carton of discarded magazines on world affairs. He is not asking any questions because his social benefits from the government give him false security. This is his trouble and his tragedy. Modern man's becoming a spectator of world events observing on his television screen without becoming involved. He watches the ominous events of our time pass before his eyes while he sips his beer in a comfortable chair. He does not seem to realize what is happening to him. He does not understand that his world is on fire and that he is about to be burned with it. I've never seen anything positive come out of being passive. Parents, pay attention, step up, be alert. Your generation, your kids need you. And if I was to kind of summarize this and kind of put it in maybe a a modern day illustration to close out this morning, I would say it this way. Beware of the undertow, the riptide. 
How many of y'all been to the beach and seen a flag like that on the screen there? Yeah, probably, probably just about everybody here. You go to the beach and there's, there's a riptide or a rip current or there's an undertow and you know, you'll see those signs and you'll see the flags out and that means you're not supposed to go up very far out into the water if, if, if at all. I think if there's two flags, you're not supposed to go out at all. And, uh, and here's the thing about an undertow. Even those signs and everything like that, a lot of times you don't realize there's an undertow till it's kind of taking you out there. It's like it's silent. And then it's like all at once you realize... I can't get back to the shore. I'm in danger of drowning. And you don't even realize it until it's almost too late. In some cases, it is too late for some people. Folks, our culture has a dangerous undertow to it. And if we are unaware of that, if we fail to respond effectively, the immorality is going to drag us and our children under. And so here's the question. What are you going to do to protect yourself and your family from the dangers undertow, the dangers undertow of our culture? Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and Father, What a challenge for all of us. We live in a culture that doesn't match up to scriptural principles and it seems like it's getting worse all the time. We love our children and we know that Satan and the culture is competing for them. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom. But Father, along with that wisdom, I, I pray that you make us proactive. Help us to be involved in our children's lives. Help us to know what's going on. Help us to take a stand when it's difficult and they're pushing against us. But Father, help us to do what's right. I pray for all the parents in this room today and some that are not parents, but they're soon gonna be parents or one day are gonna be parents. Father, I just lift us up to you. Help us to to be aware of, of, of where the culture is competing for our kids at. Help us make the necessary changes. Help church and youth groups and stuff are wonderful backups and supplements but ultimately it's up to us father i pray for our parents give them wisdom give them guidance help them to be proactive and take a stand i pray all these things in jesus name